This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker Spine and Orthopedic Podcast. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Scott Blumenthal with Texas Back Institute. Dr. Blumenthal is one of the great spine surgeons. It's such a pleasure to speak with him every single time we're able to do that. So Dr. Blumenthal, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's great to talk to you again. Now, I know we've got a lot to discuss, but before we dive into my questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? All right. So um, I've been at the Texas Back Institute down in Dallas, Texas for now 30 years. I've been in practice about 35 years. Um, Over the past 20 years, as you know, Laura, I've really focused on artificial disc technology and uh, have embraced it both on a research level with the clinical FDA studies as well as uh, in my daily practice. And uh, other, other things that we, we've kind of dove into pretty deep over the past couple of years, particularly with the pandemic, is we've gotten involved in telemedicine. We've done quite a bit of that. Uh, and with the travel situation um, that's fortunately resolved now for the most part, Patients that used to be going to Europe and such for medical tourism for artificial disc, uh, we're now seeing in Texas. So we've got our our own little travel program here uh, for uh, the patients that are looking for a bit more experience in artificial disc like Europe used to have over us. And now, you know, we've pretty much caught up or surpassed. Well, that's really great to hear. And, you know, when you think about the artificial discs, what really stands out to you about the technology today? What is, um, has developed us really advantageous? And then how do you see it evolving over the next couple of years or so? You know, it's, th- there's a two-phased answer to that question. So when we're talking about artificial discs, we'll divide it into the neck, cervical, or low back lumbar. The cervical has really taken off big time with six to eight FDA-approved prostheses in the U.S., and it's pretty much become the standard of care for a lot of disc problems in the neck. And it's really pretty much done, done everywhere, and technology is continuing to evolve. There are a couple discs still under FDA trial, and, and we'll see more and more uh, choices as time goes on. The other answer to your question is lumbar. And lumbar's been a bit more of a challenge just because, number one, there hasn't been the diversity of different types of artificial discs approved. The insurance landscape has been more difficult. And the business of lumbar has pretty much become kind of a, a, a niche a niche business or a center of excellence. And, you know, there's, there's much, much, much fewer places around the U.S. where you can get lumbar. Um, but we, we've stayed pretty consistent and, and you know, have consistent numbers. And, and that's a big part of our travel program is, is the lumbar artificial disc. Got it. Well, that's you know, really amazing to hear. And especially thinking about, you know, where how the lumbar disc replacement has evolved over the past few years, where it started five, 10 years ago to where, you know, now it's a large part of the travel program. That's, that's really great to hear. Now, when you're looking at healthcare overall, what trends are you following most closely today? Yeah, now this, you know, this gets interesting. Um, you know, I, I think we've got such a challenging system of reimbursement, not from, well, certainly from a financial basis as well, but in terms of access to care, we have more and more non-medical people making decisions uh, or getting in the middle of the doctor-patient relationship. So if you were to say the, the most, the biggest challenge in healthcare today uh, is corporate interference in the 
physician-patient relationship. You, you know, it used to be you go to your doctor, he says, this is what I think we should do, and it just gets done. Now it goes through three or four layers, and in my experience, you know, much of the time it gets denied and what your doctor thinks is best uh, doesn't fit a protocol that was established on a corporate basis. And you have an eye doctor asking a bureaucrat if he can do eye surgery. I mean, it's the craziest thing in the world. And I think that's our uh, probably our biggest challenge. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just such an interesting problem to have within the healthcare space. And so when you're looking at um, the, this challenge of trying to make sure that patients have coverage for needed spine procedures and technologies that they're coming out, um, which are, could be really beneficial, but, you know, you've got this kind of roadblock uh, with the, within the insurance companies. How do you see that playing out over the next few years? You know, are there any um, solutions or does it seem like it'll continue to be a challenge um, to, to work through some of these roadblocks that have been put in place? Well, I mean, I, I think there is a challenge that we have to get over. And I think one of the lessons we learned from the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is that there's a huge difference between having health insurance and health care. And accessibility and being able to go ahead and treat patients without corporate interference, that's what we need to get over. And interestingly enough, in the, the, the one payer where that relationship is maintained and there's less corporate oversight, frankly, is Medicare. And, you know, as much as we talk about as, as – uh, as physicians, that, that we would we would hate to see Medicare for all or, or government health care, those are our easiest patients to take care of because because they, they we basically have a contract with the government that they pay us on a fee, on a set fee schedule and we don't have to jump through twelve hoops like we do for the private payers. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that, and then it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, when you look at orthopedic spine and ASCs in particular, how do you see them evolving over the next two years or so? Yeah, so that's interesting. We've seen obviously a trend for more and more spine procedures to be done in ASCs. And I think if we follow the safety protocols, I think this can continue you know, on an ongoing basis. You don't want to overstep. You don't want to put patients at risk by trying to, to do too much in an ASC. There's still patients that, you know, have complications and you need the backup that a hospital can provide. But I think that's where data comes in. You know, and if we've got data supporting that, you know, with XYZ type of patient and XYZ type of procedure, if all those boxes are checked, uh, then, the, then, you know, it's, it's accepted standard of care to do that procedure orthopedic or spine uh, in an ASC, you know, I think, I think that's, that's going to be, and it's certainly cost effective. And a, a lot of times it's very, you know, there facilities like ASCs or short stay hospitals have lesser infection rates uh, than big hospitals. So there's some outcome uh, improvements as well. So I think we will continue. It's not a trend that's going to go away. Look at it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, from your perspective and in, in thinking about um, how all of these, you know, ASCs obviously not going away, there's a, a place in definitely patients that are coming uh, into that space. But what other challenges do you see ahead? I know we talked a little bit about some of the challenges on the payer side of things. Are there any other um, roadblocks, I guess, or, or potential other things that could be challenges to look out for? 
Well, you know, I, I hate to get I hate to get uh, uh, two forty thousand uh, foot view type things, but I, I think that you know, the challenges are that the physicians need to get back in charge of making medical decisions. You know, uh, you can complain as much as you want. You can fall on either side of some of the regulations and restrictions we've had during the pandemic, such as masking and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, the physicians had very little to say in those type of things. And so we just need to, to get back and, and, and put our stake in the ground that medical decisions get made by medically trained people and not bureaucrats or politicians. Absolutely. I, I think that's a really great point. And so having physicians um, coming back and being able to take control of the decision-making process, what can they do in order to kind of insert that, assert that power and really take that back in terms of that patient-physician relationship? I, I think it's going to have to be data. I mean, I think we're going to have to prove that we make better decisions and we'll have to, frankly, get the patients behind us because at the end of the day, the ultimate consumer is the patients. And if the patients don't sign up for this particular plan because they're known not to allow physicians to make the decisions, then patients will choose plan B rather than plan A. So it really is, is kind of, uh, it's going to have to be a group effort, but we're going to need some good physician leaders. And, and, and I think the, the younger generation, the up and coming uh, physicians are the ones that are going to have to take the lead on this. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Blumenthal, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really fantastic uh, conversation, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Laura.